Well, good morning once again. Go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word to the book of Luke with me. If you don't have your own copy, there should be one in the back of the pew there for you. So find Matthew, Mark, Luke in your New Testament, verse or uh, chapter 3 rather. Uh, we're not going to only just stay here in Luke today, so if you have like a marker ribbon in your Bible or Bible cover, you might want to have it handy. We're going to look at a couple of the other gospel writers uh, today as well, such as Matthew, Mark, and John as well. And if you remember from way back, we said that the synoptic gospels are composed of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three gospels there, not John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and those are the synoptic gospels, meaning they're viewed from the same so they cover a lot of the similarities of the same uh, general outline, and they follow along with Jesus from a similar perspective. And uh, if you remember way back, we said that synoptic is sort of like a uh, three-lead three EKG. If you ever had your heart looked at electrically, they put those little stickers on your wrists and your ankles, and they can get a look at your heart with three different leads, right? They all look the same, but they're just a little bit of a different perspective, and so then we take John, we throw John in there, and then that's sort of like when they put the, the patches across your chest, right? They're really looking at a more detailed look. And so that's what we're talking about with the gospel writers in terms of them looking at the life and ministry of Jesus. But when we entered into chapter 3, we entered into some territory that the other gospel writers picked up. If you remember, Luke's account is the earliest account in the New Testament the earliest information chronologically into the life and ministry of Jesus. And so when we broke into chapter 3, we're going to start to see how the other gospel writers recount some of this same information. And so we're going to take and see also today that Luke's going to take us on a little detour in terms of our chronological order that we have been following, and that's for a good, very good reason. He's going to do something topically for, here us, or for us here today. I have to apologize. I had four hours of sleep, so. <laughs> but we're going we're gonna to look at what uh, uh, Luke has to say about that. But today we're looking at Luke chapter 3. We're covering verses 18 through 20 this morning. And we're reading from the New American Standard Version. So Luke chapter 3, verses 18 and 20. And if you're able to stand with me today for the reading of God's Word, I invite you to do so. So Luke chapter 3, verse 18 through 20. And God's holy word says this. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you how it nourishes us and sustains us. And Lord, just help us to delight in that the more we know of your word, we'll, the more we'll know of you and be able to worship you in spirit and truth because your word is truth, Lord. So thank you for this gift, this treasure that we have. Help us to not neglect it in our daily nourishment of it. And Lord, we are so grateful for the things that we see happening down in Peru with the completion of the Kalina New Testament. And with that, we rejoice, Lord. And so as we seek to send missionaries down there, Lord, that their hearts would be ready to be discipled and to understand your word and its depths and its truths. 
So, Father, this morning, help our hearts and minds to be ready to receive what you have for us today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned before, we entered into chapter 3. We're entering some territory that the other gospel writers also have written. And so from this point on, as we go here, we're probably going to be taking a look at uh, what they have to say as well. And we're going to do so to just kind of help us understand the different perspectives the gospel writers are coming from. But even though there's this great diversity in what they've written, we're going to find that there is also greater unity in what they've written. And that message is a very simple, unified message. And that is God has come to save us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But last week we got an introduction on the man, the mission, and the message of John the Baptist, as Steve so eloquently alliterated last week. And I was trying to think, I'm not sure if his Methodist forefathers did those sorts of things, if they'd be pleased with that or not, but hey. But we got introduced into something that was foreign to us in terms of, if you were reading from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and that is in the term of baptism. And Steve touched on this last week. This is essentially what would have been done to the Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. Remember that a Gentile was someone who was not part of God's chosen people by birth. And they were considered to be pagan. They were heathens. And when the nation of Israel, they came into the promised land, and they were surrounded by these pagan Gentile nations. They weren't Jewish. And so they were considered heathens, and thus they were called Gentiles. And so if they wanted to follow the God of the Jews, there was a couple of things that they had to go through. They would need to demonstrate these things in order to show that I'm a true convert of Judaism. And it was a long process. It wasn't just something like what we see at the Union County Fairgrounds with some guy with a prayer bead stick saying in 60 seconds, you're saved, right? But you had to learn a lot to be able to go through how to understand and how to fully embrace Judaism. There was dietary laws. There were uh, laws in how you had to understand the Sabbath. You could only carry your pack maybe 1.9 miles. There's a book out with all these laws. I'm going to eventually get a copy of it. But if you went two miles, you're in sin. 1.9 miles, you're okay. If you carried 50 pounds, you're in sin. But 45 pounds was okay. It was very narrow, and you had to know those things in order to become a convert to Judaism. But one of the first things that a Gentile would need to do, there was three things. If you were a male, you would have to be circumcised. It didn't matter how old you were, If you were an old man or you were a young man or whatever, you had to go through fulfilling the Jewish demands of being circumcised. And this was really a point of contention we saw in Acts chapter 15, if you've read through that. That's where the Jerusalem council came together. There were some Jews coming, some uh, those of the Pharisees who had converted to Christianity, and they said, these Gentiles, they need to be circumcised, right? But it was a point of contention so much that a council was convened and... Thankfully, really, for Pastor Steve, they ruled that that was not necessary. I mean, thank God. I I thought of this, and I thought, thank God we have to only buy grape juice and communion wafers and not ice packs and gauze, right? So they they said you don't have to be circumcised. So if you were male and you wanted to become a Jewish proselyte, you would need to be circumcised. And you had to be really serious to go through this. This wasn't fun. The second thing you needed to do to become 
a Jewish convert was you would need to provide an offering for sin. And this was done by animal sacrifice. The Gentile would bring the altar or the animal to the altar. They would sacrifice the animal, and then they were sprinkled with the blood onto the Gentile to demonstrate that they had been atoned for their daily sinfulness. So then you had circumcision, you had animal sacrifice, and then the last thing they had to do, and the least bloody for sure, was you had to go into immersion in water, which is really a foreshadowing of what we know of today as baptism. And it really was symbolic of the proselyte, the the Gentile, that they were dying to the Gentile world as they knew it. It would be a decisive ceremony to demonstrate you are now converted to Judaism. And all these three steps have Jewish names to them. They are the Mela, the Korban, and the Tabela. And so this guy dunking people in the wilderness, in the water, wouldn't have really been that odd of a thing, even though as we read from the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's kind of a new concept for us. It seems like a sudden surprise, but it really is not. You might even be surprised, and I didn't know this as I was reading and studying, that Jewish communities today still practice a form of baptism. It's called the mikvah, M-I-K-V-A-H. And it's what you do to convert to Judaism. Listen to what uh, the Jewish professor and rabbi, Maurice Lamb, had to say about the importance of the mikvah in converting to Judaism. He says this, quote, Ritual immersion is the total submersion of the body in a pool of water. This pool and its water are precisely prescribed in Jewish law. Immersion is the common core component of every traditional conversion process for male and female, adult and child, for ignoramus and scholar. It is an essential component, and a conversion ceremony without immersion is unacceptable to the traditional religious community and is not acceptable in the Jewish community, end quote. So they still practice it today. So that really puts a damper on what some churches today practice and they hold to with the sprinkling on of water, such as the Catholics or Lutherans, and they, they don't even practice what the Jewish tradition was, and that was of immersion. But here was John the Baptist telling those who were of Jewish descent that they needed to, go under, they needed to undergo the baptism of repentance. This was an affront to them. They really didn't like this, and it was really meant to be. And that's what he said to them in verse 8 back in our text. He said, don't tell me you've got Abraham for your father. Don't even begin to say that. Don't bank on the fact that you have Jewish descent and you don't need this. And that really has great implications for us and a lot of you younger ones here this morning. Now, you might have told your friends and your families and your relatives that you go to church and that your parents are Christians, right? As far as life goes, you and your parents have always gone to church. It's just what you do. It's part of your family's identity. We go to church. We've always gone to church. I've got news for you. You're not going to be able to ride on your parents' coattails into heaven just because you've always gone to church. You're not going to be able to stand before God on Judgment Day and tell them and say, look to mom and dad and say, those are my parents. They went to church. We went to church. We gave. They did good deeds. None of that is going to matter. You going to church on Sunday isn't going to matter. You going on a short-term mission trip is not going to matter. You going, giving your time and money to great Christian causes 
is not going to matter. You being homeschooled and Christian schooled isn't going to matter. Your dad being a pastor or a missionary is not going to matter. And what we're saying is not these things are bad in and of themselves, but understand this, that your family's religious connections, your good works, and your good deeds are not going to save you. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7, 22. He said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Those are all great things, right? All good deeds, speaking forth boldly for God, casting out demons and healing the afflicted are all good deeds. But what does he say? He says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Wow. What is going to matter here is that you know Jesus Christ personally and that Jesus Christ knows you. That's what he says in John 10, 27 and 28. He's saying, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. So we're not talking about head knowledge here. We're not just talking about, you know, some of the facts of the gospel. What we're really talking about, and this is for everyone in this room, we're talking about your affections. We're talking about your motivations. We're talking about your passions. Do you have a passion for Jesus Christ? Not a passion for your business, not a passion for your family, not a passion for your work, not a passion for anything else, but in your inward chambers of your heart, do you have a passion for Jesus Christ? Do you love Him? Are you doing these things for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ? Is he the last thing your mind thinks of when you go to bed at night and when you wake up in the morning, he's on your mind? Does Jesus Christ reside in the inward chambers of the heart so that in everything you do, and I mean everything, whether you eat, drink, or whatever, you are doing it for the glory of Jesus Christ? When you go on a missions trip, are you seeking to bring about the glory of God? When you give, the, give to the poor, are you doing so to bring about the glory of God? When you go to church, are you doing so because you delight in Him, you love God, and you want to be with the love of God's people? That's what really John the Baptist is getting at here in chapter 3. He's not saying to the crowds just to give their clothing and food. He's not saying to the tax collectors just give or get what you're supposed to. He's not saying to these soldiers to no longer steal to lie and just be satisfied with their wages. But what he is saying is that all these things are the fruit of repentance. And so John the Baptist is telling these Jews who are coming out to them to see him You need to have an inward change of the heart. Don't depend on your heritage. Don't depend on your family lineage. Don't tell me you have Abraham for your father. You need to be transformed from the inside out. You need righteousness. You need holiness. And that can only come from the new birth by the power of the Holy Spirit. And who can affect that birth? Who can baptize with the Holy Spirit? It's not John. He's only baptizing with water. 
It's the one that's coming after John, who is mightier than he, and who he doesn't even consider himself worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. And not only does he, that is Jesus, have the ability and the authority to baptize with the Holy Spirit, or you might say immerse with the Holy Spirit or fill with the Holy Spirit, but he will have the authority to execute judgment, right? The baptism of fire. And that's why John then uses this illustration of the winnowing fork and the wheat and the chaff in verse 17. As a farmer would gather the wheat into the piles, they would take these tools that look like pitchforks, and they would gather some of it and throw it up in the air. And as the wheat would fly up into the air, the chaff would float away by the wind, but the grain and the wheat and what they wanted would land on the ground. So the lighter chaff would float away, the stalks would fly away, but the grain would fall to the ground. And it's sort of the same imagery today. If you think about a combine, you see them making that dust cloud and all that stuff coming out the back. That's the chaff. All the grains gathered up in that hopper, but the chaff's being thrown out the back. And so back in the first century, you had to do everything by hand. You toss it up in the air, the chaff would fly away, and the wheat would land in a pile on the ground. But that's the same imagery that the psalmists use in Psalm 1, right? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. But in verse 4, he compares the righteous to the wicked. He says, the wicked are not, like, are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. So John is using this agrarian illustration, which they would have been familiar with, to demonstrate to them that there was a coming separation. There was going to be division. To those who are truly repentant, i.e., those who are baptized in the Holy Spirit, which is an act of God that occurs at regeneration and is not some sideshow subsequent experience that happens later in your Christian life, but to those who are born again, they will be gathered into the barn, or literally heaven. But to those who are not repentant, and those who are hardened in their hearts, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth with unquenchable fire and hell. Hell is not some concept that's been developed by angry pastors to be able to yell from the pulpit. It is a real place of eternal torment. And as I was looking at verse 17... I thought it really dispels a couple notions that some people have to, that they have hold on to theologically. First of all, verse 17, it dispels the notion of universalism. The notion that God is going to universally reconcile everyone to himself. All human beings, whether good or evil, are going to make it to heaven. But verse 17 tells us that there's clearly a time of separation. And secondly, it dispels the notion of annihilationism. If you've never heard of this, I hadn't until recently as well, but annihilationism teaches that you're going to go to hell for just a little bit, then you're going to get annihilated. You're going to be vaporized. I mean, that's not really that bad of a deal. You're going to suffer for a little bit, but that's not what the Bible tells us. It says the fire is unquenchable. It doesn't stop. It continually burns without being consumed. But then in our text, in verse 18, I want you to look there. It says, so with many uh, uh, exhortations... He preached the gospel to the people. So first of all, an exhortation is a call to do something or earnestly do something. So what are these exhortations that Paul in this gospel, what is this that he was preaching? Or rather, John the Baptist. Well, before we turn to the book of John, I want you to notice in verse 20 real quick there in chapter 3, it says that John 
locked, or Herod is going to lock John up in prison, right? So verse 20, John's going to get locked up in prison, right? You with me? All right, so in verse 18, uh, John is locked up in prison in verse 20. So turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 22 starting there. Okay, so John chapter 3, verse 22, it says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spreading, uh, spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there. So right there, again, is another point for baptism by immersion. Why would he need to have a lot of water? So he could immerse these people, right? And continuing on, it says, And people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown in prison. All right? So we're still before Luke 3.20. Are you tracking with me? You good? Okay? So John has not been thrown in prison yet. So, verse 25, Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John, they said to him, Rabbi, who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified? Behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. Again, Isaiah said he's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. Gabriel said in chapter 1 he's going to be the forerunner. John himself, the Baptist, he knows that he is the forerunner. But John is continually pointing them to Jesus. Verse 29, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Again, there is someone greater coming, and increasingly so, so that is greater than I. I am going to go out of the spotlight, and Jesus is going forward. Verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks, forth, speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Again, Matthew 28, all things in heaven and earth have been given to me. Verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. So there again, in verse 36, John is telling them that there's going to be division. Those who will receive eternal life and those who have the wrath of God abide on them. The wheat and the chaff, eternal life, eternal torment. John is preaching the gospel, or literally what the gospel means is good news. That if you believe in the Son, you will indeed have eternal life. Now notice that the interesting thing from verse 36 there that the converse isn't that if you don't believe, but if you don't obey. You can't just say, you believe in Jesus, you believe he lived, a long, he lived a long time ago, he lived a good moral life, and he was a good example for us to follow, and then turn around and not be obedient to the Lord and have any confidence that you are going to heaven. 
That's what the head and heart thing we were talking about a little bit ago. Okay? Being a Christian isn't just an accumulation of facts or an intellectual assent about Jesus. There has to be a new desire birthed within you. You have to have a new relationship to your sin, just like Paul did in Romans 7. You must be born again, just like Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So let's go back to Luke 3 here. Flip back over with me, Luke 3, looking at verse 19. It says, But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done. Now, this Herod is one of three sons of Herod the Great. Remember way back, Herod the Great was the great builder. He rebuilt the temple. He's trying to, he was from Idumea, which is south of Jerusalem, the region. He was kind of a quasi-Jew. Uh, they didn't really trust him, but he did a lot of buildings and those types of things. And, of course, he named himself the Great, Herod the Great. But he was a great builder, and he had these three sons, Herod Antipas, uh, Philip, and Archelaus. And when Herod the Great died in 4 BC, the Romans divided that kingdom up between his sons. And as Josephus records for, his, uh, for us in his Antiquities of the Jews, the story essentially goes that Herod Antipas, in our verse 19 here, he went to Rome to visit his half-brother, who was another guy named Philip. Not the Philip we know in verse, or chapter 3, verse 1 here, but a different half-brother, right? And while he was visiting his brother, he becomes kind of smitten with his half-brother's wife. And her name is Herodias. But there's a problem. They're both married. Both Herodias wants to be married to this ruler, and he wants to take her as his wife. So she agrees to marry him as long as he divorces his wife. And so he does, and they get married. Now, you have to consider that Herod Antipas, the Herod in verse 19 19 here, he didn't really have a good fatherly figure in terms of marriage. Uh, Herod the Great was married ten times, and some of those wives he murdered himself. But in case all of this twistedness doesn't just blow your mind here, Herodias, the the girl he's marrying from his brother's wife, she's actually the daughter of his other half-brother, okay? So Herodias first marries creepy Uncle Philip, all right? And then she divorces him, and then she marries creepy Uncle Herod Antipas, right? And all of this seemed like a, a, to us in a time and a culture that they're less than enlightened, right? They're a bunch of knuckleheads, and they're, they're just power-hungry people doing whatever they want to get what they wanted. But guess what, folks? Here we are some 2,000 years later, and we're seeing an unprecedented change in the understanding of what marriage is in this society as a whole, and they don't, because they don't embrace the fundamental truth, that truth is real and objective. They believe that truth is relative and changing. As Francis Schaeffer once put it, he said, society has its feet firmly planted in midair. They have nothing to stand on, right? It has no objective, moral, absolute base with which they have to understand what marriage is. And so we're seeing a society as a whole shift its thinking in terms of embracing what is called gay marriage now, right? Society is not going to stop there, folks. If the sex of the individual within marriage doesn't matter, why should the number of individuals matter? 
And so all these shows are popping up on TV and TLC and showing how normal polygamy can be, right? Laws are being knocked down already about polygamy because they don't, they don't have nothing with which to stand on. And you mark my words, folks, and I'm not the first to ever point this out, but if the sex of the individual doesn't matter in marriage and the number of individuals doesn't matter in marriage, the age will soon fall. The age of the individual with which you will marry will soon go by the wayside. And not only that, but the familial relationship with which you want to marry. So you can marry your grandma, your uncle, your daughter. It's not going to matter. And I think we'll see it probably in our lifetime because this is the trend that is going. So the only cure for this, folks, is not laws. And I'm not saying that we don't vote. I'm not saying we don't campaign and do everything we can, but the change that's going to be effective is the gospel. The only cure for that is repentance and righteousness and holiness that is found only in Jesus Christ. And that's what John the Baptist is telling Herod. In Matthew 14, 5 and Mark 6, 18, John tells Herod that it is not lawful for him to have Herodias as a wife. Now, why is that? Well, there's three reasons. Number one, they both divorced to get married in the first place. Strike one. Number two, the relationship between the two was incest. They were related. You couldn't do that. That's strike two. And finally, in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21, it was forbidden for you to marry your brother's wife because it was considered abhorrent. There's strike three. But Herod's position and his power doesn't stop John from preaching to him. And as we look at the differences in verse 18 and 19 even of what John the Baptist did, he exhorts the people, but he reprimands Herod. He is bold. He is not afraid of Herod. He's not afraid to tell him that he's in open and blatant sin. It doesn't really matter that he's the ruling authority. This would be like us going to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and telling the president, you're in sin. And from what I hear lately, uh, you wouldn't have a hard time getting even in there to be able to say that to him, right? But this is the boldness with which John calls Herod to repent. And the term used for reprimand in the Greek here, it tells us that this is not a one-time deal. This is a constant reprimand of Herod. So this didn't sit well with Herod. He didn't like this, and more so, it didn't sit well with his niece-slash-wife, Herodias. She wants him dead, and she'll eventually get her wish, right? But in the meantime, what's the easiest thing to do when you're confronted, when you're in power and you're confronted with sin? The easiest thing to do is avoid. The easiest thing to do is silence. The easiest thing to do is divert, right? Just like Adam in the garden in in Genesis chapter 3. Have you eaten from the tree which I told you not to? And what does he say? That woman you gave me, she gave it to me, right? Divert, divert, divert. And in verse 20, it says that the result of all the other things which John confronted Herod, it says, Herod also added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. So what Luke is saying here is that of all the wicked things that Herod had done with lying and deceit and divorce and incest and adultery and all these other sins that Herod had done, Luke's assessment is that the greatest atrocity, the greatest crime that Herod commits is locking up John the Baptist. 
the forerunner to the Messiah, the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, is no longer allowed to speak. He's locked up by Herod. His witness, his message are all silenced because he's incarcerated. The Jewish historian Josephus records for us that John ends up being locked up in a fortified city called Macheris, which is on the east side of the Dead Sea. If you can think about Jerusalem and the big Dead Sea uh, a few miles away from it, Macheris is on the other side of the sea. Now, as I mentioned before, Luke ends John's ministry here. But it actually occurs much later during Jesus' ministry. Matthew 4.12 tells us that when Jesus hears of John's imprisonment, he withdraws to Galilee and begins his ministry. But that doesn't happen for us in Luke 4.14. So why this sudden shift from this chronological narrative to now this topical one? Why this abrupt end without any of the details about John the Baptist like Matthew or Mark give? It's reminiscent of the abrupt end of Zechariah's account at the temple in Luke 1.23. And he says, uh, after all these things, he went home. Right? I don't really have a deep theological answer for you. But I have a very practical answer for you. And I think what Luke is getting at is the same thing that John the Baptist is getting at. Not that John the Baptist is unimportant. Not that what happens to him is uh, is inconsequential. Not that you don't need to know that John's message and mission fulfilled a 700-year-old prophecy from Isaiah. But what you do need to know is that there is one greater. There is one who has been promised to the world since Genesis 3.15. Jesus is the one you need to know about. He is the one who can baptize you with what you truly need. No amount of water can truly remove sin. But you need to be regenerated, you need to be justified, you need to be sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what can we take away from this passage this morning? Three things I got for you. Number one, we need to be bold like John the Baptist to preach the gospel. Some of us here probably just struggle with talking to our relatives and our family members about the gospel, let alone someone in a power and authority like Herod was. But what do we ultimately have to be ashamed of? What do we have to fear? Is it the sense of pride that we might feel ostracized? Is it a sense of embarrassment that we might feel that people might think we're, we're not intellectual to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ because we're some sort of anti-scientific buffoon? But as we've mentioned before here, the Apostle Paul, he prayed for boldness at the end of Ephesians. And he did so twice. He said, pray that I will have boldness to speak as I ought to speak. And beloved, if Paul, Paul of old people who wrote 13 books of the New Testament, can ask them to help me have boldness in preaching the gospel, beloved, we can do so as well. Don't feel ashamed that you don't have boldness. Pray that God would give you boldness to share the gospel this week with someone. And number two, just like John the Baptist, we need to continually point people to Jesus Christ. That was John's mission. I think that's what Luke's point here is is in this abruptness in concluding John's life here. But do people know you more by your occupation than they do by your Savior? When you post on Facebook and Twitter, 
Are you posting more about your family and your activities and your likes more than pointing people to the Redeemer that you love? I had a great uncle that I may have met when I was uh, a lot younger, but has since passed away. And all I've ever heard of him is that Uncle Bill was a godly man. Uncle Bill. Uncle Bill was a godly man. That's the very first thing I hear about Uncle Bill. He's dead now. I, I, don't, I, I can't meet with him or anything else. But the second thing you want to know, it's the second thing I always hear about, is Uncle Bill was in the Navy, and he was in a ship, on a ship in Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, and had that ship blown out from underneath of him. But that's not the most important thing in his life that they tell me about. They tell me he's a godly man. He was a Christian, God-fearing man. This incredible day in history, this monumental event that occurred in American history, is secondary to him knowing Jesus Christ. That's powerful. That is powerful. Is that the legacy that you would leave if you died today? That people know you because you know your Savior. And number three, last thing. Unlike Herod, when we're confronted with sin, we need not divert. We need not silence. We need not avoid our accuser. We need to repent and confess. Our problem with sin isn't that it is pleasurable so much necessarily, but our problem is is that we are far too easily pleased. We don't understand the true satisfaction that we can have by being gluttonous on God. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, tells us, and He will give you the desires of your heart. But far too many of us have it the other way around, where we want the desires of our heart. And then if that condition is met, then we will delight in the Lord. But when we're confronted with sin, beloved, the right response should be confession and repentance. When is the last time you confessed sin to someone? When is the last time you told someone, I am struggling with sin? Proverbs 28, 13 says that he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. 1 John 1, 9 1 John 1, 9, it says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of it. Not just a little bit, all of it. So let's thank God this morning that when we do sin, that if we repent and we confess, that He will never ever bring it up again and He will separate it as far as the east is from the west from us. That this morning, that's what we can be thankful for. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for these glorious truths that are found in your word, these treasures. And as I study and read and and prepare, Lord, there is just so much more here than just what meets the eye in a cursory reading. Help us to have the boldness to preach your gospel this week, Lord. What a delight that would be if we would be able to come here next Sunday and share of all the stories how we were able to share the gospel with those around us. Lord, help us to be a confessing people, not just a one time when we get saved, a confession of sin that we are a sinner, Lord, but a continual confession of sin. Because you are faithful and you are just and you are good.
How marvelous that truth is, Lord, that if we would just confess our sin, that you would take it away from us, that you will separate it from us, because you are the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we are so grateful for this time this morning. Help us to walk in this truth this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.